One time, uh, the story about the, the founder of Zikadopova, um, I shipped this very, this very bad bug and that cost the, the company a lot of money. And so I was feeling uh, you know, um, devastated about what I had done. And so I wrote an email to CEO and uh, leadership, like, I'm so sorry, this is what happened. This is how much it costs. I'm very full responsibility for it and so on. He came over to my desk uh, with a bottle of Fernet, which was like the company drink at the time. Fernet, oh, I love Fernet, it. Yes. Delicious. And Delicious. He poured a, he San poured Francisco, a it's a San Francisco staple. Exactly. <laughs> he poured a shot of uh, Fernet on my desk and he said, let's drink it and drink it. And he drunk it and he said, now it's over. We don't talk about it anymore. And, and it was 9, 9 a.m. on a Monday. It was Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Seed Stories. This is John Dashatsky here with my friend Emmanuel from Somatic. Thanks for joining us today. We've got a lot to cover. As the title of the show says, we want to get to your seed round, which is an exciting announcement I want to talk all about. But I always like to kick it off with, with people's backstory, how they got into startups and technology. So paint a picture for us. Yeah, for sure. So I started my career about 15 years ago in academia, actually. Uh, so I'm originally from Europe. I was doing physics research at CERN, the big physics lab in Switzerland. Uh, and that was a lot of fun. Uh, I learned tons of, of cool stuff, but I always had some sort of as, uh, admiration for, you know, Silicon Valley startups, the tech world in general. Um, I also, you know, as a teenager, love to like write, you know, web apps and all sorts of computer projects. In 2011, I decided to leave academia and worked in tech at a number of small startups in Europe and eventually moved to the US in 2014 when I joined Instacart, uh, a grocery delivery company, I'm sure you know. Small, uh, small little grocery delivery company. I mean, at the time, <laughs> 2014, it was less than 200 employees. So not, you know, not seed stage, but still uh, not yeah. the uh, multi-unicorn that it is today. But that was a great experience uh, seeing the company go through this hyper growth phase. Uh, I stayed there for about four years. I learned a ton about how to scale an engineering organization, how to scale uh, an actual product and structure behind it. Uh, and in 2018, I had the fortune to join Cruise, the self-driving car company in San Francisco. I kind of moved into the MLOps area and ML infrastructure. Uh, at the time, Cruise did not have a lot of infrastructure around ML, uh, but in 2019, they decided to move a lot of their uh, sort of layer of, of the stack that's on the car to ML models as opposed to heuristics. And so that required a ton of infrastructure. So we co-founded with a number of engineers, the um, ML platform team. And throughout this entire journey, I always had at some point like, oh yes, I want to found. Of course, everybody moves to Silicon Valley with at some point the idea of founding. I've got, I've got, I've got to do it. Yeah, it's yeah, like you go, to, do it. Like you go to Hollywood, people. you go to Hollywood with a script. It's the same yeah, thing. Yeah, right? exactly. <laughs> you know, you, you come to Silicon Valley, you learn a ton from the industry, but you also think like, oh, those people are doing it and maybe I can do it too. Um, and so the problem is always to find the right idea. And we all have, you know, tons of shitty ideas all the time. <laughs> what is the one that is actually can carry a company at least through the early phases and so on. And while working at Cruise, I developed some infrastructure tools for the ML teams. And suddenly I found something that, yes, I think this could be potentially a product to sell to the rest of the industry. Um, so that's sort of what I did. I left Cruise in April 22. So this year and uh, started Sematic, and the idea was to rebuild from scratch uh, ML infrastructure inspired by learnings that uh, I gathered from Cruise 
and make it open source and available to the rest of the industry. And uh, suddenly I had lots of confidence that the product uh, was, was worthy of a company because it had, I, have, I had seen it succeed internally at a large company like Cruise. Uh, and so I knew that the idea behind it was, was valuable. And I had further validation by you know, getting into YC. I spent the summer doing YC. And so obviously, you know, YC doesn't mean that the company is going to be successful, but it means that people trust you and your background to, to do something with it. This is a little off menu. Given your background, I think it's really important for listeners because we hear from a lot of folks who are in academia. How do I get into startups? It's a bit of a difficult transition, right? Yeah. Going from research and maybe a lab or whatever to then practically applying your skills. What advice would you have for folks that are looking to make that jump? Yeah, it's definitely not an easy jump. I was always pretty good at a number of different things. So as a researcher, I was never the best physicist in the world. I was an okay physicist, but I was also good at building tooling and you know, doing presentations to present the work and doing public speaking. And so those skills can also be applied in, in the private sector. So being able to like change hats and, and do different things, it was helpful because you know, when you work in tech, especially in early stage companies, you have to do many different things. We even have mm -hmm. sometimes as an engineer to chip in to do marketing or to do public speaking or, or, or sales, for example, sometimes. So having this ability to uh, change gear, change mode of, of functioning and uh, address those different things uh, was helpful. And I must say for me, going from a 3000 people experiments at CERN to a 10 people team was um, an, an amazing awakening because suddenly mm. the, the cycle to make decisions and move fast was going from like months to hours. You know, when you work on large experiments in, in, in science, everything has to be approved by thousands of, of people yeah. and committees and so on. And for good reason, you know, you do science, it's serious. You can't just, you know, go on a whim and decide things like that. In startups, you can have an idea in the morning, uh, apply it, uh, deploy it to production in the afternoon and measure the impact the next morning. It's really fast. Yeah, get a really fast feedback on your products. And that's some, something that was really refreshing for me as uh, at the time I was, I guess, uh, 28 or something. It was very refreshing to have this really much faster iteration loop, even be able to go up to the CEO and say, oh, I have this idea. What about if we uh, add this button here in the product and let people do this and that? And we would just give it a try. And that was really yeah. amazing to have this much kind of power of, uh, on the products. Awesome. That great, great advice. And I think super direct and, and, and applicable in, in the startup world, right? Like the more hats you can wear, mm -hmm. the more useful you are within the organization. Instacart and Cruise, two completely different types of organizations, but both impressive in their own right, right? Like both combining applications of, of bits and atoms, you know, and in different approaches. Tell me... One or two things that you took away from those two experiences, you know, Instacart's a household name now. Cruise has literally driverless cars on the streets of San Francisco now, which is an amazing, yeah. amazing, amazing achievement. But obviously behind the scenes, probably sheer and utter chaos at both places. I guess, what did you take away from those experiences and want to bring into, into your new, new company? Yeah, so when I, I joined Instacart when it was still fairly small, uh, less than 200 people. And at the time, uh, you had definitely had to wear many hats. Uh, you had to be the DevOps person jumping into a production fire to optimize the database. You had to uh, you know, be a front-end engineer to write some Angular uh, JS code. Uh, you had to even sometimes do a bit of design here and there. It was That was really uh, a very exciting time, honestly. That was really great. What I learned from Instacart was hyper growth in terms of headcount. 
We were aggressively hiring. I think when I joined less than 200, when I left, it was probably around 800 people. Uh, so I had to grow really fast and mutate the org almost every quarter in terms of you know, teams breakdown, responsibilities, and so on. And that was, that was really good. What I learned at Instacart also is the value of culture. There was a really strong sort of family-like culture where everybody was helping each other out. The entire company was aligned behind those company-level goals, which means that nobody was, there was no infighting about, oh, I'm, my sub-products, my area of the product has to succeed over yours, or I want to mm. get this scope over yours. Because everybody was aligned with those company-level goals, which I think is a pretty standard now in the industry. But I was discovering this at the time in 2015. I was like, wow, being able to harness 500 people behind this one goal to, for example, raise the amount of money we make on each delivery, for example. And yep. within three months, we were able to, to, to achieve those goals by harnessing the power of the entire org. And it was very impressive. And I give, you know, get great credit to all the leaders at Instacart for being able to do that. Um, so that's definitely uh, something I learned. Uh, also, another thing I learned is that you don't necessarily need to hire the most technical engineers to be successful. I learned that from transitioning from Instacart to Cruise, Cruise will definitely target the top of the crop, you know, the MIT, Stanford, uh, uh, you know, UC Berkeley, all those very skilled engineers. Instacart would sometimes take a chance on somebody that comes out of the bootcamp, for example, or somebody that is a junior engineer. But because they have the culture and the sense of product as well, uh, they would be successful and be able to be autonomous and, and be successful in the org. The engineers at Instacart were not like the most like hardcore, technically, you know, computer yeah. vision study that you can find at Cruise, but because of their, the way that they were able to do product and design and a bit of marketing and a bit of, and a bit of engineering on every level, then it worked well. Uh, it made for a really great culture of everybody helping each other out. Uh, so there was really a lot of humility at Instacart that I, that I loved. If you're the one engineer whose code made all the parents lose their baby formula for that month <laughs> become <laughs> delivery, like you're going to be pretty bummed out about that versus cruise. The risks are relatively high there as well. You know, yes. you, maybe you, maybe you hit the baby crossing the street. <laughs> so like, yeah, yeah. I guess the stakes are pretty high either I mean, way. I shipped <laughs> bugs at Instacart that cost the company, you know, dozens of thousands of dollars in a few minutes because, you know, you forget to charge taxes or whatever for some orders. And so, or you issue too many refunds or whatever. Um, so I definitely went through those kind of issues of, of shipping um, bad code to production. And I remember one time that this story about the the founder of Instacart, Opova. I shipped this very this very bad bug, and that cost the company a lot of money. And so I was feeling, you know, um, devastated about what I had done. And so I wrote an email to. CEO and leadership, like, I'm so sorry, this is what happened. This is how much it costs. I'm bearing full responsibility for it and so on. He came over to my desk uh, with a bottle of Frenet, which was like the company drink at the time. Frenet. Oh, I love Frenet, it. Yes. Delicious. And Delicious. He poured a, he San poured Francisco, a it's a San Francisco staple. Exactly. <laughs> he poured a shot of Frenet on my desk and he said, let's drink it and drink it. We drunk it. And he said, now it's over. We don't talk about it anymore. And, and it was nine nine a.m. on a Monday. It was, <laughs> uh, it was not a.m., but like yeah, ten eleven a.m. No. Some 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 weekday, and awesome. basically he was like, "Yes, you made a mistake. You acknowledged it, and that's fine. We move on." Cool. You know? And I yeah. felt really good about that. You had your PTSD from uh, academia. You move to Silicon Valley from the outside world, if you if if you will. Uh, the amount of money that you get paid in Silicon Valley is 
uh, you know, it's kind of sometimes a bit insane. Um, and obviously, you know, cost of living is very high in the Bay Area, so it's, it's justified and so on. But I always felt like, well, I'm being paid a lot of money. I need to, you know, make good on this this investment that people are yeah. making with me. So I need to work extra hard. I need to really bring a lot of value to the company. And if I'm costing the company money by shipping bugs, then yes, I feel terrible because they're hiring me and then they're paying me top dollar. I need to deliver on this uh, this promise. Um, so yeah, that I don't know if that comes from academia or from coming from outside of Silicon Valley where you don't get paid a lot of money for, you know, short weekdays and whatnot. Um, <laughs> I so, think it might yeah. be the the, uh, the immigrant mentality, which is like, Possibly. I have <laughs> one shot at this and I better not fuck it up. Yes, yes, exactly. Possibly. <laughs> so one of the things we were, you and I were talking about before we started the show was about you knowing you wanted to start a company. And I, and I love when founders say that you were a little kid in the sandbox, instead of building a castle, you were like building a business plan, you know, like what, what was it? Do you think that was kind of pushing you towards eventually wanting to start your own company? Yeah. yeah. yeah so my, my dad, uh, he never started his own company, but he was definitely, um, sort of an exec his whole life. And he was always struggling with authority, if you will, like he was, no, joining a new company with a lot of uh, enthusiasm and, and promise. And then after three or four years, like, oh, my boss is an idiot. I can't really work for him anymore. And my mom kept telling him, just start your own thing if you can't stand having a boss. And um, I sort of carried the same pattern. Uh, all the companies I worked at, I definitely respected, uh, you know, the founders of, of Cruise and Instacart a lot, but I always felt like, oh my God, I, it's, one day I should, should do my own thing to see if, yeah. if I can do it, you know? Um, so there was always this, this kind of aspiration to what it is like to be your own boss. You know, everybody fantasizes about, oh, if I wish I was, I was my own boss. However, obviously, uh, things are not that easy because you always, you always have a boss, even if it's not literally your boss. Oh, you have the board, you have the customers, yeah, you have the exactly, employees, you, you have, have, employees. Exactly. you have more bosses now. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I have more bosses now. Um, <laughs> I used to have like one person to satisfy and now I have totally. a group of people yeah. to satisfy. <laughs> Everyone. Um, yeah. So, but definitely just, I think I definitely have this uh, complex of having something to prove myself uh, potentially as well. Like, yes, I, I can do it. You know, um, as a teenager, I started to think about doing research and being in academia as like, uh, wanted to prove myself that I can do it. Looking at all those prominent researchers, like, yes, I want to prove myself that I can do it. So got my PhD. Yes, I was able to do it. Then started working in research. Yes, I'm able to do it. And then it was like, can I do tech? Hmm, I wonder if I can do tech. I'd love mm. to do tech. So I started doing it. So yes, I can do tech. Then I moved to the Bay, to the Bay Area. Yes, I can work in Silicon Valley. And then I got hired at Instacart and then Cruise and I became a senior staff engineer at Cruise. I'm like, wow, I, I can do it. So I'm like, how far can I push this? Can I yeah. try to, can I be my own boss? Can I be a CEO? Can I build a successful company? That's what I'm trying to find out now. So there's this kind of uh, constant ambition to try to see what is my limit? What, what is it that I cannot do? Um, and that's what I'm trying to figure out now. You know, I think a lot of entrepreneurs struggle with this, myself included, at, at a certain point, which is like, you know, I was friends with all these startup people. Uh, I remember seeing, you know, Dan and, and Kyle on, on Gilbert Street when they first had the Audi, you know, with the janky you know, machine on top mm -hmm. of the of the car driving down the highway. And I think, you know, I was like, wow, that's really special set of entrepreneurs. I don't know if I could do it at, at that level. You know what I mean? And and I think it's rare people can can. So were there ever is there ever any self doubt 
Yeah, I think, you know, imposter syndrome is an amazing fuel for anything you do because you, you always think that you're not good enough or, or that others are better than you and you, you don't belong where you are. And so it makes you work extra hard. And um, seeing all those entrepreneurs, whereas uh, Pova from Instacart or Kyle from, from Cruise, um, and seeing how strong they were as leaders, I always thought, I don't know if I can do that. They're so strong. But I'm sure that internally, privately, they're also crippled with doubts especially when you lead a multi-billion dollar company with hundreds of employees, every decision you make has so much impact on people's lives, on your customers, on your investors and so on. I'm sure they also had their own internal doubts all the time, but I think that's something that also keeps you humble uh, because if you come into the industry and you think you've got everything figured out and you know, for some people it works, maybe, you know, there's the Elons of the world uh, that's, and I'm sure Elon Musk yeah. also had his dad at some, some, at some times, but some people are, are gifted with an amazing self-confidence and this is how they're successful at business. Good for them. Uh, for me, the, the self-doubt and the uh, imposter syndrome is what has pushed me to never settle or never be, never be sort of happy or sit in my laurels with any achievement that I had. I remember at Cruise, every time I would aim for a promotion, I was like, okay, when I make staff, then I can chill. And then as soon as I get promoted, yes, there's one or two weeks of like, oh, I'm happy I made staff. And then what do we do now? I need to, I need, first I need to prove to my manager that they were right in promoting me, that I didn't steal my promotions. I need to prove the entire org that I'm worthy of this title. And then I need to make the next step. Uh, so every time you reach an achievement, you can celebrate for a couple of weeks. That's great. But soon enough, you're like, yeah, but now I need to prove that I'm worthy of it and I need to aim for the next one. Yeah, uh, yeah. And this is like, this is what fuels your, your progress, basically. There's a, there's a folklore. You'll have to tell me if this is true or not. Uh, when Cruz sold to GM, one of the investors came by with a bottle of champagne to celebrate and thought he was at the wrong office because everybody was still working <laughs> and just like keeping on. Everybody was still grinding away. And the yeah, investor was yeah. like, is this, this is, is this Cruz yeah, automation? Yeah, yeah. Am I at the right place? Yeah, I mean, I joined got... right after the GM acquisition. I think it was, yeah, uh, yeah. was 2016. I joined in 2018, but I can definitely see that being true. Uh, in... Well, and things took off from there, right? Like it seems yeah. like it was only just the beginning, you know? Um, yeah. So, well, you quit your job to start a company. Mm -hmm. You made the leap of faith. Um, tell me how you sort of fell into this idea for Somatic. Yeah, so um, I was a tech lead of the ML infrastructure team at Insta, uh, excuse me, at Cruise. And um, I had seen uh, a lot of ML engineers join Cruise and struggle with the existing tools that, that were on the markets. And those people uh, don't necessarily have the same set of skills as software engineers or infrastructure engineers. So people that have PhDs or master's degrees in computer vision or machine learning typically get trained uh, to do machine learning in what's called Jupyter Notebooks. I don't know if you know anything about data science. It's like a tool to write Python and have visualizations and so on. Um, but they don't necessarily get taught about infrastructure or large-scale applications and so on. And, you know, that makes sense. It's a different set of skills. The same way that software engineers, they maybe get a little bit of a course on data science, but not much more. And the available tooling for these folks uh, was making a lot of assumption that they know how to handle large-scale infrastructure and how to deploy things to the cloud and whatnot. And that's not true. So what would happen at Cruise is that every time they would build those long end-to-end -end pipelines to retrain the models and so on, they would have to hand over the work to infrastructure teams 
to productionize those pipelines and make them robust and so on. And it was very inefficient because it means we needed to hire more and more infrastructure engineers to support more and more mm. ML engineers and to support more and more models. Instead, what if we built tools that were sufficiently high level uh, that had some semantics? This is where the name semantic comes from, the higher level semantics so that those end users can operate those tools by themselves without having to learn the innards of cloud infrastructure. Uh, I often make the sort of uh, analogy with uh, Ruby on Rails. Ruby on Rails was this amazing shift in the uh, web development industry where suddenly people of arbitrary skills, uh, you know, young or old uh, beginners or experts were able to build a small app on a laptop and scale it in the cloud into a unicorn company. Like, you know, Instacart was when I joined yep. with a Google Rails app, Stripe as well, you know, dozens of companies across the industry. And it was very powerful because it came with a good a set of, of best practices that uh, that taught uh, engineers how to build web apps because, you know, you had the web, the um, model view controller uh, model and, you know, unit testing and functional testing and, and so on. And this shift hasn't really happened in machine learning infrastructure where uh, the, the shift of making the tools accessible to, to everybody. You know, things like Heroku, for example, where you can deploy something without knowing anything about a web server. Uh, those things haven't really happened yet in, in, in machine learning. And so we bridged, we were able to bridge that gap successfully at Cruise by, by building very powerful tools that give access to like GPU clusters and MapReduce clusters, like really powerful underlying tools without knowing the intricacies of how those work, uh, getting access to the workforce. And so this is when I saw, I, I, I saw the potential for high-level infrastructure tools that give access to, to those folks. And also what you see in the ML industry is that the people who were doing it 10 years ago were themselves software engineers. The first people I started working with at Instacart were doing data science. They were themselves former software engineers, so they had no problem dealing with infrastructure problems, debugging container logs and so on. That was fine. People now that are coming into the workforce don't have those skills because everything that's low level becomes less and less known the same way that mm. I wouldn't know how to hack a CPU, for example, or how to, yeah. you know, or, or, or build or build one or, or, or yeah, create, yeah, exactly. or build yeah. out a, a, a server. You yeah, know. exactly. If I need to deploy a web app or something, I just deploy to AWS or GCP right. or whatever, you know. And so that's just the, the trend of the industry is that the layers of abstraction get higher and higher and the workforce forgets how to do the lower level because they don't need to do anymore, you know. Uh, the same way that, you know, engineers don't need to know how an electrical network works or anything like that because it's all abstracted away. And so the same thing is happening in ML. People that join the workforce don't have those low-level skills. So you have to raise the level of semantics that those tools are, are bringing. So I saw this successful at Cruise. And so um, after four years uh, uh, working at Cruise, I was starting to, you know, feel a bit restless and like, okay, what do I do next? Do I go and retire at Google or, or Meta or, or some other company <laughs> or, or do I, um, you know, go back to work at a small company to feel the excitement or maybe it's the right time to start my own because suddenly I have an idea that I think is, is, is worthwhile. Yep. Uh, I also were able to save a bit of money over the years so that I could go for a few months without income if necessary. Um, and so I was like, okay, let's give it a try and uh, let's, let's jump in. Um, and once you decide to make the jump, then you just have to keep going and go really hard because there's, there's no, no pause. I've basically been working full, full time, seven days a week since, since May. And, you know, this is, this is what you have to do. In the beginning. Listen to that loud and clear listeners. 
seven days a week for your seed stage company, okay? This is not a Parisian four-day work week, okay? (laughs) (laughs) Going from that idea to building that initial founding team, I guess, who did you decide to surround yourself with? I mean, first five, you know, founders, first 10, these are the most critical yes. hires to setting the direction yeah, of the company. Yeah. How did you think about that? Um, yeah, yeah. You know, the, the one thing I will say is that you have an extremely good pattern matching ability, having worked in the trenches at two hyperscale, mm-hmm. hyper growth companies. So my guess is your sort of bar for talent is relatively high. Not always the easiest to get that onto a founding team of a no-name startup, you know? Yep. <laughs> um, I guess, how did you approach the, the, the choice in candidates? And then how, how have you approached selection? Uh, having access to very, very senior people is very hard for, uh, for early stage companies. And also my bar is very, uh, being an engineer myself, I can quickly see the skills of a candidate and um, and so I need to feel impressed by somebody to, to hire them. Um, and so what happened is that when I left people that were still at cruise, were like, oh, this guy's leaving. Oh, what are we going to do? And then they started seeing me like get into YC and, uh, you know, launch the open source product in, in July and like, oh, that's interesting. And so some of them reached out to me and was like, do you need help? Sure. Yes, I do need help. Uh, I can't pay you as much as Cruise, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> different price, different price yeah. point. Yeah. But I think when people have worked at large companies uh, for a while, for like you know five, ten years, at some point they want to go back to something small uh, yep. because they appreciate the the fast turnaround time, the so the absence of red tape and, and politics and, and so on. You know, Cruise, just like any other large companies of that scale, you know, you have some amount of processes and planning and red tape and politics and so on. Um, and, you know, no shade on uh, the, the management teams at Cruise. People are really stellar people there. But it's true. As soon as you eat a certain scale, you need to have more processes, more red tape and so on. Of course. But I think some people after a while, like, okay, I've done this for a while. Now I want to... Um, uh, get something, do something more exciting where I go back to building actually, instead of like writing docs all day long or like running planning meetings. Some of those people were ripe for, uh, for a change. And so they reached out to me. Um, also, I just dug deep into my network of people that had left crews in the past that I thought were very valuable. And I was basically able to convince them to join uh, because of the track record of things that I had built at Cruise and the few people that I had joined already. Uh, my first employee, Josh, was one of my closest collaborator at, at Cruise. He was an exceptional engineer. So when I told other folks, oh, you know, Josh from Cruise, he also joined me. He's like, oh, people are like, oh, wow. Oh, really? yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. Amazing, you know. And same yeah. for employee number two and so on. And now the team, uh, we're five people in total. And so four of us are ex-Cruisers uh, because I think this is also reaping the benefit of just being a good human at work. Even if you don't plan to start a company in the future, always be a good person in the workplace and then it will pay off when you, you, might, get recruit, you might get recruited to a cool startup. Yeah. Because, yeah. um, people remind me as being, um, a, a good sort of tech leader at cruise and not being like, you know, an asshole or being too, you know, selfish or too political or anything like that. They have a good memory of working with me and achieving results. And so, um, they are always willing to, like, to join me for another adventure and, and trust me. 
so once I get those first couple of hires, then it was uh, easier to, to to get the the other two because of, like this snowball effect of like if you have a couple very talented people, then the others will, will follow. Uh, but I must say our team is one of our biggest strengths at Semantic. We have four very senior people that not only worked at Cruise, but also other companies like Adobe, Google, Microsoft. So we are very skilled people uh, that you know have gone around the industry and now want to go back to, to building something. I, I think you're right for late stage companies. I think there's things that are needed at a company there that are a lot different than going yep. zero to one. Mm -hmm. And so what I always tell founders, and, you know, I have friends who are early stage founders, friends who are late stage founders, like there are tours of duty in the startup world, right? Mm -hmm. And certain times you need militia, you know, to chop through the forest and other times you need, you know, the, the, the team to come in and build the community, mm -hmm. right. And, or, you know, build the little townships and, 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 and just requires different, completely different skill sets. And so finding your folks that are sort of, I guess, lost at the late stage companies that the fact that you have the ability to bring them into, to a new, new company is, is, is really killer. So you get into YC, um, you push through to, 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 to demo day. Um, you know, I guess for the listeners now, the size of YC is incredibly large, but the value is still there. From my perspective, this is hotly debated on Twitter all the yes. time, no matter what, <laughs> yes. but year after year after year, they continue to absolutely dominate, um, you know, the headlines as far as value and AUM and, you know, incredible companies. So what was the most salient few things that were valuable out of the program for you? To be very transparent, um, I applied to YC the day before the deadline. Uh, I didn't even think about applying to YC. Also, full disclosure, when I started the company, I had a co-founder that also left Cruise with me. Uh, we parted ways eventually. Something happens often in early stage startups. Yep. Um, but I personally didn't even think about applying to YC. Uh, we were already in talks with certain investors, nothing committed at that time, but I was like, I didn't even think about YC. And then my co-founder at the time was like, oh, the deadline for YC is tomorrow. We should put something together. And thankfully the app, the YC application process is fairly lightweight. You fill up a form, yep. you shoot a couple of videos of yourself, you know, intro videos and, and your product. Um, and then you have this interview, this 10 minute interview. Um, so we did it as like, let's, let's do it, you know, and, and we see, you know, if we get it then, and then we can decide. And then if we don't get it, then so be it. So we did it thanks to our background and the, the fact we come from cruise and so on, we did get, um, um, invited for the interview and then we got the call that we, we got in. And at the time, uh, I think it was sort of very pretentious of me. I think at the time I didn't accept right away. Uh, because some of my advisor told me, oh, why see these days, you know, is you're going to be, you know, you're going to be uh, with lost in the shuffle. Lost yeah. in the shuffle. Yeah. Uh, it's also very expensive. 7% of your company is huge. It's uh, and so some people were telling me, you don't need it. You don't need it. You can go and raise money by yourself. Other people were telling me, are you crazy? Of course, take it. Of course you should take it. And so, um, I know a lot of companies are like, you know, struggling to get in and so on, even after they have a successful product and so on. So, um, I, I eventually we decided to, to, to get in. And I think for me, the, the value was really the community aspect, being able to have access to all those founders for all stage companies, being surrounded by other early stage founders that were going through similar, uh, you know, troubles, whether or not their product is close to yours, you know, it could be a consumer facing product or 
whatever it is, they're still going through defining the product, product market fit, finding investors, what is your brand, what is your identity, you know, hiring and so on. So feeling that you're not alone because you're surrounded by all those folks is, is very helpful. And now, even though the batch is over, I still meet with some of those folks on a regular basis. It's part of, it's, it's a bit like a college experience, if you will. You build a network and then you, you know those people for your, the rest of your life. So that was definitely one aspect that was very valuable. And then of course, the exposure, you know, when you go through YC, you get to post your, your job listings on their job board and you get a lot more candidates. Uh, you get to you know spend one day in the, in the homepage of Hacker News when you launch your products. Gets you a lot of exposure. Uh, they also have now their uh, uh, launch uh, H uh, launch YC, which is kind of like a product launch uh, clone. Uh, so the exposure is great. Also, during the entire batch, you get inbound emails from investors all the time, and so you can yeah. organize your demo day you know rounds uh, so that within two weeks. I pitched like maybe 16 investors uh, in two weeks. I was exhaust, exhausted at the end, but <laughs> we were able to close the round in about four weeks, uh, thanks to that. So for all those reasons, that was very valuable. Also, I must say the advice you get from the, the partners are value, val very valuable, even though mm. many times I would hear advice and was like, well, of course, you know, for example, they tell you, don't spend your money, you know, and <laughs> as an adult that has my own personal budget, I know, of course, you don't spend your money, you keep it for a rainy day. And then, but hearing those things said, said out loud and laid out in front of you and like hammered into your brain every day, uh, things like don't hire too fast, uh, you know, uh, find product market fit, listen to your customers, you know, all those things that seem obvious, you know, when you're a, 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 like a well-rounded adult, uh, it's always nice to have it repeated. Like my mom is a teacher and she always said, education is about repeating. You have to repeat the same right. thing over and over again for things to get in your head. Yep. And YC is very much like that, even though when you read it the first time, like, I don't need it. I know. I yeah, I know that. Talk to customers, need... build product. Yeah. It's that's yeah. that's easy. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, until you hear it over and over again, that's when you realize this is really what, what you should do. Also, one thing I realized during YC is that the culture that I had known at Instacart and Cruise actually came from YC. This obsession for results, for moving fast, for uh, never resting, never uh, being satisfied with your achievements, always reaching for more, measuring everything. All those things uh, that I thought were just good practices of tech companies, I realized were actually things that they probably learned through YC because both those companies went through through YC. Um, so that's also something that now I, you know, of course, want to bake into my own company. Fascinating. I always like to get this sort of latest and greatest experience wise from, I mean, I bleed orange. I owe my entire career to, to, to YC and all the founders I met there along the ways who are friends and people that I've invested in. And, you know, I, I think that a lot of people struggle with the fact that a lot of what it does is so simple. Mm -hmm. And a lot of investors struggle with the fact that for 7%, so much more value is provided than a single VC firm. Yeah. And so it's nice to hear that you saw that through line to a lot of the successful companies that you had previously previously worked at. I mean, look, the format is pretty straightforward, right? Like and you 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 ended up at Demo Day and you lined it you sounds like you lined up 60 fundraising meetings. You know, you had your one liner, you had your one pager, you had a deck. Walk me through what tactics you use to like get that seed round done. It sounds like you, you sort of had an extremely efficient process for those who are not part of YC. They really drill this into you to kind of making it a little yeah. bit like a sales process, but would love to hear 
your mentality going into it yeah, and yeah. sort of how you approached it, whether, whether it was different or, or yeah, sort yeah. of standard, standard playbook. I actually think that I followed more of a brute force approach than uh, the most upside. <laughs> uh, I definitely learned things through the process. For example, so, you know, when you, as you're getting those inbound emails throughout the batch, YC tells you, do not talk to investors right now. Your product is not ready. Aim for traction first, whether it's revenue or, or user base and so on. And, you know, make, you know, the, uh, the, the bride look good before, before you, you go out and try to sell the, uh, the, the company. Um, so, uh, they, they encourage you to push all the meetings to start like the week before demo day, basically. So that it starts around that time and you build some FOMO and everybody wants to invest and so on. Um, so I definitely did that. However, I did not organize and this kind of uh, prioritize investors in, in the right way. Ideally, I should have prioritized investors that I don't care too much about in the beginning so that I can, you know, train my pitch, see what works and doesn't work and keep the ones that I want to the, to the end of, of the process when the, the pitch is well-trained and, and I know exactly what works and what doesn't. I did not do that. So I had, you know, very prominent investors like, you know, um, Kleiner Perkins was in like my first or second day, you know, uh, Lightspeed was like in my I feel first like I'm going day. right to the top. I'm going right to the top. <laughs> yeah, because the thing is they reached out, I sent them my Calendly link and of course they booked the earliest right possible away. time. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, um, and, then, and then the partners, the YC partners told me, you need to have multiple links with different windows for different types of investors. And I only figured that out after the fact. Um, but that's, that's definitely something that, that's, that's interesting. Um, so yeah, compressing the whole thing in, in two weeks uh, is good because it's going to be very intense. You know, you're pitching seven, eight times a day, um, repeating your, your pitch over and over again. Uh, you have to make uh, adjustments to your pitch and to your slides during uh, between each pitch. Also at first I did not use the buffer feature on Calendly. Uh, so I actually had literal back-to-back -back pitches. Oh, wow. Like, like no five minute break. Just... Yes. Like from nine to nine 30 and then from nine 30 to 10 and then 10, 10 30. And at this the is end where you day, need I... your shot, shot of Fernet to help yeah, you that's out right. again. <laughs> <laughs> so the second week I'm like, okay, now I'm going to have buffers. So I had like 30 minutes buffer so that I could, you know, review the slides and upgrade and do research on the next investor and, and so on. Um, and adjust, remove things that didn't work and, and so on. And by the end, my entire pitch was on autopilot. I was really going through the entire thing automatically. I had answers to everything. Um, uh, I actually did not jump into those calls with the slides up. I would just have my face there, start mm. the first you know, 10 minutes with a conversation, give my background, the whole story that I told you in the beginning, academia, tech and whatnot. Um, and only after a while, and jumping into the product, it's like, I have a few slides if you're interested. I can, sure, yeah, let's go ahead. Make it more organic as opposed to like, here's my pitch deck. And totally. I do, you know, uh, make people feel like you're actually having a conversation. Um, and uh, well, they're, ba they're backing you at the end of the day, right? Like you and your founding team. You know, the seed, seed and pre-seed is extraordinarily founder driven. Like, you need to be in a market that's large enough, right? Like, let's just say that you need to have obviously a novel idea and mm -hmm. the table stakes, yep. but yeah, yeah. the vast overweight is that yeah, yeah. personal touch and that personal experience sure. as yeah, well yeah. as that founder market fit. And so yeah. I, I love that you do that. And I love that you don't use your slides as a crutch. I think it's, it's really important for, for yeah. other founders to hear that. I mean, also I'm not a designer, so my slides are not the nicest. So I would rather yeah. you know, use them as a, as a tool later on. Another thing that I learned in that, uh, in, that, in that round is that you need to get your angels before the round starts. So yeah. um, 
because you use them as, as sort of baits for the bigger investors. I started also pitching. I had some angels from before YC, so I, I closed a, a very small round before YC. People um, like on safe, like on safe. You just had people. Yeah, like on a safe. safe. I actually yeah. did a roll-up vehicle thing where you. Oh yeah. Set it up. Yeah, Angel Angelist, uh, Angelist. Uh, RUV. Yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah, yeah. A great tool. So I did that. I had a handful of uh, prominent angels in there, uh, but I still had folks that I wanted to close, and I started working them during the round instead of doing it before the round so that I could use their names during the round. Uh, and so, because the whole point is to generate some FOMO. So every time somebody commits to your round, you need to send emails to all the people you already pitched. This people joined, uh, yeah. you know, or this other investor joined, they just committed. So, you know, it's getting hot, you need to enter now. And this is how you get people to commit eventually without doing like weeks of due diligence. Um, and so I, if I could do it again, I would get those angels in prior to starting the round so that yeah. I already have some traction. Even if you don't announce anything, you can every day you know, send out an email, oh, this CTO from this company just joined or like, and so on. Um, so that's also something I learned. It's, it's a bit of a silly game. You know, you're, like, you're there for two or three weeks and sending emails around every few days with updates like, oh, this person joined, this person joined. Uh, but this is how it works and this is how the game is played. And so you, you have to learn it to, to get your first uh, seed, seed round. Three million bucks, race capital, YC, Soma, my boy Neil, uh, Pioneer Fund, really stellar group of individuals around the table. Um, you know, congratulations. It's only just the beginning as you, uh, you know, from your cruise background, you just keep your head down and keep working. It's not, it's a celebration and it's a little bit of a celebration, one moment of celebration. So congratulations on the raise. What I always like to end on is what does the next 12 months look like? What does the next 10 years look like? Yeah, for sure. So 12 months for us is really reaching product market fit and getting some um, sort of upward revenue trends uh, so that we can scale the team later. Right now, the team we have now, is probably not going to grow because you know we're at capacity in terms of burn. Uh, we can't can't spend more. So we want to build um, our go-to-market strategy either as a SaaS product, um, so like a hosted service, or on-prem. So we really have to like flex those muscles and figure out exactly what customers want, and sort of shape the product in in that way, uh, and operate very nimbly so that we can raise a Series A in like twelve or eighteen months, and at that time we'll be able to scale up our uh, operations like more salespeople and more engineers and so on. Uh, so that's the next one year is like survival and, and, and getting there. Um, next 10 years, uh, people ask me sometimes, oh, what is your exit strategy? And uh, people who have an exit strategy from the get-go, I feel like it's a bit uh, sort of presumptuous. Yeah. Uh, who knows what's going to happen? You're most likely going to fail, first of all. First of all, you're mostly <laughs> going into the ground and you're just learning from that failure. <laughs> and, and that only that is already a good outcome in the sense that you've had an amazing experience. Yes, your ego and your self-esteem takes a hit, but you've learned uh, and then you keep moving. So that's one likely exit. Obviously, that's not the one I'm targeting. Um, but uh, you could end up being a very successful uh, infrastructure company. You could end up being acquired by some uh, other big player. I'm not optimizing for any of those outcomes. I'm optimizing for building a product that people want to use and want to pay for. That's what I'm focused on. Uh, Simple as that. I, I love it. And, and, and where can people find you if they want to try, try the product out or get on the wait list? What's the... They can learn about us at semantic.dev. So it's semantic, not semantic without an net. It's S-E-M-A-T-I-C dot dev. And from there, they can join our Discord server. Uh, they can also install the open source product 
and also start our GitHub repo. And you know, we're always happy to help people of any skill get started. We're also welcoming any contributors to the open source community. Uh, so yeah, join us on Discord and start the conversation there. Look, I think the future is bright for you, Emmanuel. Your realism about failure is very fresh and and, and well appreciated, but I think you're going to do quite well. So thanks for joining the show. It was really fun to have you. And uh, I look forward to seeing what you do. Yeah, thank you so much, John, for having me on. This was fun. Thanks.